Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Welcome to another quarterly market update. I'm Alison Savas, Client Portfolio Manager. As always, we'll be examining some of the key topics to emerge in global equities over the past quarter and discussing our portfolio positioning. Then in the second part of this episode, the focus will turn to our views on China. Joining me for this update is Portfolio Manager Sunny Vangia. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. By the end of March, the S&P was only 5% shy of its all-time high set in early January, despite intensifying geopolitical and economic uncertainty. In fact, in early March, US equities staged one of the largest and fastest bear market rallies since 1928. But the move back into the growthier tech complex in the US faded into April. Non-cyclical value is outperforming growth as a style in the US, as it is globally, as policy is tightening at a faster pace than the market expected. However, cyclicals have also started to underperform. So Sunny, the key topics to discuss in this quarterly update are stagflation, policy risk, and China. Can we start with stagflation? Our clients and listeners would know we identified the risk of stagflation some time ago. But the Ukraine crisis has amplified risks around economic activity and also inflation. So has stagflation become our base case? Thanks, Alison. Uh, it is definitely an increased risk now and uh, it's looking that way. Economic growth had begun to slow towards the end of last year as we passed the peak of stimulus-led uh, growth. And inflation was building because we had supply constraints on uh, the supply chains, tight labour markets, rent, very high rents thanks to very tight housing supply. And even though uh, supply chains were looking to ease uh, at some time this year, we've got hit. We've just been hit by another crisis with Ukraine. Um, and the longer the war continues, the greater risk to economic activity globally. But it further adds inflationary pressures into the system through now soft and hard commodities. We know Russia being a large exporter of oil and gas and the impacts that's had on the energy markets, but also the region is a large exporter of agricultural commodities. Uh, Russia and Ukraine produce around a third of the world's wheat, a fifth of the world's corn, and about 15% of the world's vegetable oil. In recent weeks, we've seen a move by Indonesia to ban the export of vegetable oil, Mm. which is a very important commodity for emerging Asia. Mm. So finally, these are all adding to uh, the tightness in energy markets. And just to to put a bit more pressure in the pressure cooker, (laughs) we've got um, Russia and Belarus that are also controlling about 40% of the global potash market. So... Potash is a key, you know, it's part of the fertilizer ecosystem. It's a key ingredient for farming. So no surprise, we saw food prices rise by 13% in March, and they're up by over 35% year on year. So this is a second supply side shock um, that we are now working through and may need to work through um, for a number of years because a lot of the supply will take years to come online. The question whether inflation will will bite into discretionary 
consumption of goods and services is now the big question because low-income households are sensitive to rising rents, energy and food prices. On an inflation-adjusted basis, real personal consumption recently fell to 2.3% per annum, modestly below the pre-COVID trend of about 2.6%. So while wages are growing at 6% per annum, inflation is slightly above that at around 8 So we're seeing negative real wage growth, which is mm. going to be a downside risk for US discretionary spending. We are tracking US and global consumption data very closely to see the implications for both the US and global economies. Mm. And that brings us to policy error. You know, the decisions from central bank policymakers can have a major impact on markets. You know, the Fed's rhetoric around inflation has become more hawkish, even as the outlook for economic activity has become less certain. The Fed is in a is in a pretty delicate position, you know, needing to balance inflation against slowing growth. So there's a real risk of policy error, isn't there, Sonny? Yes, there is. The question is whether the Fed has waited too long to tighten policy. Higher and stickier inflation is likely going to force the Fed to tighten policy in the face of what we can see is a weakening consumer environment in the US and you know consumer confidence is, is quite low. The market has already forecasted Fed hikes and the market is seeing policies reach around 2.5% by the end of this year. The Fed has also announced quantitative tightening on top of that, mm. which will see the balance sheet reduced by over 10% per annum. Aggressive hikes in the sh- in short-term rates could intensify any slowdown without necessarily addressing inflation, which just causes more um, room for policy error here. So the mm. Fed's going to have to make some very tough dis- decisions. Now, with regards to the US consumer, um, that cohort is very sensitive to longer-end interest rates. So, for example, mortgage rates. And in the United States, they are priced off the 30-year yields. So we've seen a big backup in back in long-end rates. Mm. Um, and so tightening short-end rates won't necessarily cool the housing market, nor will it really solve some of the supply-side constraints that we've discussed. So the Fed really needs to strike a balance between some rate hikes at the short end, but also uh, they need to see higher yields in the long end potentially through their quantitative tightening process. So effectively, the Fed needs to engineer a steeper yield curve, which is going to be a tricky policy uh, manoeuvre. Fewer rate hikes at the short end could provide some protection to the economic outlook, while higher yields can curb some of the excesses in the asset and property markets that are feeding into services inflation and will try to control inflation. But there'll be collateral damage if, if it were to happen, and all the, and as the, those excesses unwind, we stoke a much bigger asset price deflation in equities and in housing. The wealthier brackets of the U.S. household will be disproportionately affected, given they control a greater share of the assets and consume a large portion of the services. So tricky decisions ahead for the Federal Reserve as, as they are. Um, going to try to protect the downside of the economy, but need to control inflation, which is at three-decade highs. Mm, That's a really good overview, Sonny. 
to round this out, can we discuss how we've responded with our broader positioning in our global portfolios? Yes, so stagflation is a challenging environment for equities broadly and can lead to correlated drawdowns. Any economic and economic disappointment in a tough environment is, is a tough environment for weaker cyclicals and, and a stickier inflation environment. We'll see the discount rate rise, which becomes a diff- difficult environment for the more secular growers, but particularly the unprofitable um, tech stocks that mm. are requiring a lower discount rate mm. um, to have their business models uh, succeed. So in response uh, to the shift in the more stagflationary environment, we've reduced overall cyclicality tilt in the portfolio. Further, we think the pragmatic value approach to investing can provide protection against this, and we will focus on resilient market leaders that can take profitable market share against this backdrop of higher for longer inflation. We'll continue to avoid the weaker companies regardless whether they are cyclicals or have a secular growth profile, as they will likely struggle in this tougher economic environment. So in terms of regional allocation, as of end of March, we had almost 50% in US equities on the long on a long basis, closer to 35% on a net basis. So relative to index, we are underweight. And the expensive and we are ex- underweight the expensive tech part of the market, which we challenged in the backdrop of higher and persistent inflation. We also think the expensive domestic cyclicals will further f- face the um, t- uh, brunt against the weak- weakening US consumer. We have around 25% in European equities with a bias uh, towards beneficiaries of long-term um, increase in spending around decarbonisation as Europe accelerates its transition to renewables, reduces its dependence on Russian gas, And importantly, as we've seen in the last couple of months, a renewed focus towards defence spending. And finally, we have about 20% exposure to to Asia, of which just over half is to China. China's economy has been very weak, um, led by domestic tight policy. However, in the past few weeks and months, we've seen a change in this direction and the easing cycle seems to have now commenced. And Sunny, that's a great segue into the second part of our podcast. And being our Asia Fund Portfolio Manager, we've got the perfect guest to spend some time talking to China. Many fund managers have given up on China, but we remain overweight across our portfolios. We've identified some great businesses that do look mispriced relative to their long-term opportunities. But we can't gloss over that China has been a drag on our alpha in recent months. Sunny, can you take us through why we think investors should hold the line on China? It's been no secret that China has been weak due to tight policy. Now, you should remember it was tight policy that they decided to implement as a a overall policy stance in regulating parts of the technology market sector, Um, you know, regulation that we're probably going to see around the world, but China has gone in um, sharply to to push the sector into a more consumer-friendly environment, mm. reform on the property sector to ensure that they don't suffer from the same problems that's occurring in other parts of the market. 
whether that be an overbuild of property or an underbuild of property mm. leading to unsustainable high pricing mm. on the housing market. So you're right, China has been a drag um, and we are seeing uh, more evidence of policy easing. We're seeing evidence of stabilization in the property market, uh, conclusion in the technology, regu technology regulatory cycle, which are all gonna be positives for the outlook for Chinese equities and the Chinese economy. Um, we have seen some rebound over the course of the month of April as the market starts looking forward and starts thinking about some of the more recent announcements that have been made. China is the world's second largest economy. It accounts for about 20% of global GDP and continues to grow in that mid-single digit. It only represents, however, 4% of the world benchmark. So it is unrepresented on, on the world stage in terms of market um, so a market relative to the size of its economy. Mm. We still think this is uh, too large of an opportunity to ignore. Mm. You mentioned a change in rhetoric and policy announcements, which is coming from the top echelon of Chinese government. Can you take us through three key developments that investors need to be aware of? Absolutely. So we are seeing, um, firstly, um, a very comprehensive uh overhaul of regulation to internet platform businesses. Um, we are coming to now more evidence that's coming to a conclusion. Um, that now there's more of a green light, red light approach, what is allowed, what is disallowed. And these businesses will now have to find, um, will have to now abide by the rules. Now compliances bring in uh, more costs, which we think the larger companies are well equipped to handle. And it also raises the barriers for new entrants to come given these higher costs. Secondly, we within that space, uh, we are seeing modifying rules allowing Chinese ADRs to potentially keep their listings by complying with more friendly uh, accounting rules. Uh, we are waiting for the US side to come back on that. None, nonetheless, um, these Chinese ADRs still have a pathway back to China through through Asia and Hong Kong listings, uh, which which are continuing to happen. So look, let's start with the property sector. The residential real estate development directly accounts for approximately 10% of GDP. It is a very meaningful part of the economy, so we do think the government's going to support it. So what has been happening? There's been an increased push in cutting mortgage rates. Um, so mortgage rates across the board, across the nation have fallen. There have been accelerating approvals to allow um, faster approval processes for mortgages. There's been a relaxation around rules in terms of uh, escrowed customer deposits to improve property developer liquidity. Um, China has a big um, asset management sector, which where, where there's a part of it that is focused on bad debts and debt recovery. So you can think of it as the you know private equity um, part of the uh, market, which has been focused on debt restructuring, and they've stepped in to buy debt from property developers and accelerate restructuring um, of assets. Um, Evergrande was obviously a big name that we all heard about, but there's been a whole host of other companies that have that these asset management companies, AMCs, that ha have been um, restructuring and buying the debt. Banks are supporting 
developer consolidation by M&A loans. And banks are issuing standby letters of credit to give developers the same credit rating as the bank so they can go out and raise bonds to continue to um, uh, their, continue their development activities. Mm. So there is a growing urgency from the government to reverse the liquidity crunch to allow high-quality developers to complete their projects, restore, restore both consumer and developer confidence to allow the developers to stronger developers to take over projects at their choice and avoid a default a big default cycle among the, amongst the weaker developers the weaker and highly geared developers will have to prioritize debt repayments over adding to land bank um, and so the sector will consolidate into larger high quality players which is the ultimate benefit of the reform that we are seeing that we are we don't have any more evergrands in the system anymore so i guess you could argue that greater policy stability reduces the tail risk around chinese regulation and reform yes that's that's right alison sunny can we also discuss china's zero covid policy the headlines suggest lockdowns will get worse as the country battles high infection rates can you take us through what you're seeing and the implications for china's economy yeah, absolutely. Look, no doubt China's in a, in a difficult position. Uh, the Western world, and not only that, parts of the emerging world have now are in the phase where they are learning to live with COVID, uh, where vaccination rates are at high levels or just natural infection and herd immunity has reached uh, relatively high levels. But in China, until recently, the vaccination rates among the elderly have been relatively low, around 80% of those 60 and above have been vaccinated. One month ago, only 40% of this cohort was boosted. Now that's jumped up to 60% over the past week. So there's an urgency on the ground in, in, in China to vaccinate quickly. Mm. We also know that the Sinovac, Sinovac vaccine has less efficacy than other COVID-19 vaccines. Multi-generational households are common in China, and the healthcare system is underdeveloped relative to West. Mm. So China has adopted the hard zero COVID policy, which is in effect a zero mobility policy. Mm. Mm. Today, cases in China, Shanghai have fallen from their peak of 26,000 per day, which is good news, but they remain stubbornly high in, in around, at around 20,000. So there is a concern that other important areas like Beijing uh, may also go into lockdown. Uh, clearly, the longer the lockdowns persist, the greater the headwind for economic activity um, and the further it puts constraints on the global supply chain ecosystem. So mm -hmm. we are tracking this uh, very closely. China's pathway to relaxation and reopening will likely come with higher vaccinations, boosters among the elderly, as the government continues to um, find ways to minimise the duration of the lockdowns. China is also trialling its own version of an mRNA vaccine, which will roll out quickly once it is approved. We know China has a lot of firepower to stimulate. So given the pressure on the economy, are you surprised we haven't seen more stimulus? Look, the policymakers in China are taking their time to ease. Um, and, and there is obviously a lot of debate on what is the right method of easing um, 
in, in, in the domestic economy. So the Vice Premier Lu He recently said monetary policy will be eased, uh, loan growth will be brought up to support the real economy. Um, so this will be a combination of triple R cuts, which we have seen, which free up liquidity for the banks to lend, and direct interest rates cuts, uh, which we have also we have also seen. On the fiscal side, uh, now we have seen tax cuts for small and medium uh, enterprises, um, and uh, that is going to be very hopeful because that those parts of the economy have suffered under the zero COVID, COVID policy. Mm. But China has enormous firepower to do more. Unlike the West, uh, China doesn't have an inflation problem domestically, acting as a handbrake of at, uh, to stimulus. China's fiscal deficit is still less than 5% of GDP compared to uh, north of 10% for the United States. And government debt to GDP is below 70%. So in recent days, we have seen Xi Jinping come out and talk about infrastructure stimulus. Mm. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, look, I think it's going to be around not the only the parts of the old industrial system, but also the new industrial parts of China, uh, electric vehicles, uh, charging stations, um, factories, automation, all the things that China is still pushing forward on a long-term basis, which will be very uh, big benefit to domestic consumption. So we do think the government will focus both on um, targeted fiscal um, in the infrastructure side and consumption subsidies for lower-income households and decarbonisation investment, as well as affordable housing. Mm. We spoke about the risk of policy error in the US, you know, that the Fed tightens too quickly in the face of slowing growth. Is there a risk of policy error in China as well, you know, that China will be you know, too slow to stimulate? That's absolutely a risk sitting there. Um, policymakers, um, you know, up, are, uh, you know, reaching their tipping point where reform uh, must be balanced against economic growth to defend their five and a half GDP target. We do know that in the first half, uh, it, it's going to look pretty bleak. So we'll need um, a catch up in the second half. So the risks of the global economy from war in Ukraine, China's slowing export engine as the Western uh, consumption shifts, shifts from goods to services, uh, and implications of the China zero COVID policy are all there. Look, these all provide an incentive for China to stimulate and boost economic activity. Um, so there is a risk, but we do f feel that the authorities are now moving a bit with a bit more urgency mm. to do something. So we have the 20th Party Congress elections at the end of the year, where President Xi Jinping will be seeking a smooth transition to a third term mm. and probably would like uh, an economy in the recovery path and further decelerating from here. Mm. And what about geopolitical risk? We can't ignore the fact that tensions between China and the West have been intensifying and any strengthening in China's relationship with Russia will be viewed poorly by the West. What is your perspective on this as a portfolio manager? So it is going to be quite difficult for the world to decouple from China um, versus decouple for, for the world to decouple against uh, Russia. So China is a um, ma massive manufacturer to the world and at the moment, there is no viable alternative to China 
at this level of manufacturing scale and cost. Mm. So you've got a situation where China has been building both upstream and downstream uh, domestically for many, many years. Um, now, as an example, most of the world's um, solar panels um, are still upstream wise the polysilicon that goes into those solar panels are being made in china now can we assemble those solar panels in malaysia or vietnam we can and we are so we are decoupling from that point of view mm. um but as we kind of look forward and you think about well what are the next industries that we want to think about particularly in this you know decarbonization sort of era we're entering well, electric, electrical vehicle production, China dominates the world in terms of electric vehicle batteries. Mm. The supply chain sits within China. Um, you know, Tesla's move to China was interesting, but now we're seeing Volkswagen and other leading OEMs moving their electric vehicle production to China because the supply chain sits in China. Um, and this is the kind of issues that we'll have to deal with over the coming decades. Um, so no doubt low-end manufacturing will increasingly gravitate to other parts of Asia, uh, mainly Vietnam, what we've seen in textiles. Mm. Uh, Vietnam, in a way, has been positioning itself to take some of that low-end, mid-end manufacturing. And there'll be parts where, you know, India, Indonesia do well, where they simply have very, very low costs of labour um, and, and, will, and will benefit from final assembly because of a labour arbitrage they have relative to the other Asian countries. Also, um, the White House's decision to freeze uh, Russia's US dollar reserves is unprecedented and China is unlikely going to be ignoring s such a move. Aligning itself with Russia could impact China's foreign exchange reserves. China has approximately $3.4 trillion of these reserves, of which more than 40% is in US dollars and represents approximately 5% of the total US government debt. For this, con in context, the Federal Reserve holds about 19% of US government debt. And finally, Sunny, you mentioned that the global portfolios have around 13% exposure to China. Can you take us through how recent events have impacted our positioning in China? The challenges in China haven't changed the long-term trends around consumption, um, whether the opportunities around decarbonisation, uh, the continual move up in higher-end industrial manufacturing in China. But the current valuations do not factor in the potential upside from policy change or economic stabilisation. We are seeing evidence of this. And this is fundamentally why we are identifying so many pragmatic value opportunities in China. We're doing the research and identifying those attractively attractive valued opportunities relative to their growth profile that demonstrate resilience. Now, recently, we have increased our exposure to the higher quality domestic cyclicals that will participate in an economic rebound. Uh, we like C-Trip, uh, China's largest leading online travel agent, which is a beneficiary of reopening and travel tra tra any travel bubbles China forms with other neighbouring countries and property-related exposures. Now, we, we have avoided the property sector while the uncertainties around reforms remained high. However, recent policy decisions is now further supporting the outlook. Yet, the upside or the rebound 
is not really being priced in given the concerns. We have taken exposure to one property developer which has a very strong balance sheet. So it's in a good position to replenish its land bank while weaker peers have to prioritize debt repayment over growth. In the near term, property sales will be subdued, but its ability to acquire low cost land bank puts this company in a great position to take market share in the next property upswing as sales start to normalize with ongoing policy support. Now we are buying this business on seven times next year's earnings. So the market isn't pricing in any normalization in sales or the overall outlook for the property market. Mm. Further, there's another business that we like called Medea. It's China's largest and leading manufacturer of air conditioners and white goods, which not only benefit from a recovery in the property sales cycle, but it is a beneficiary of the consumption trends that we have discussed earlier. As incomes continue to rise, so will penetration of air conditioners, white goods, as well as an ongoing replacement demand as consumers trade up. It will also benefit from any lower income stimulus that the government does. This is a business that can grow its earnings greater than 10% per annum for a very long time, given its large and growing total addressable market while being able to grow overseas. Mm. It's attractively priced on 11 times earnings, which again assumes very little in the way of any property sales recovery. Finally, we have consolidated some of our internet platform exposures in the likes of JD.com and Tencent. Thanks, Sunny, for that overview of what is a complex global environment for investors to navigate. For any further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get a notification when our next episode is uploaded in a few weeks' time.